we've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you. My name is Aaron. I am the teaching pastor here at Lake Forest Church here at our Westlake community, and Happy New Year to you, especially if you are new uh, or a friend invited you, family member. I I got to meet a first-timer in the last service, a fellow Californian, Uh, and it's always good. Californians, we're kind of strange. We kind of (gasps) huddle. You know, it's almost like uh, Christmas all over again when you meet a Californian. So we uh, we got to celebrate that, but if you are new, uh, we just want you to know how honored we are that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning with us, uh, that you would choose to be here. We really hope this will be uh, if not the at least a highlight of your week, that you'll walk out of here encouraged, more hopeful, more joyful, more strengthened for the life you are called to live. Well, we uh, before we get into the series today, I actually want to just kind of give you a quick update on some stuff. Can I do that? Uh, we had a fantastic Christmas service, by the way. We had over 550 people at our Christmas Eve service. It's kind of mind-blowing. Is like if you can, uh, in fact, our first service, we totally ran out of room. We had no chairs. Second one, we almost ran out of room. It was just awesome. I have no idea what we're going to do next year. But it was a great joy to celebrate Christmas with you. Also wanted to update you and let you know just some financial news. Uh, we actually ended our year ahead of where we had projected and budgeted for giving. And uh, the reason I wanted to tell you that is just to say thank you. Uh, those of you, who, of you who have continued to uh, practice generosity, to, to partner with God and the mission through this church, uh, it just means the world to me. I, I don't know what else to say except thank you. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your sacrifice. Um, just so amazed to see all that God is doing. Uh, we're getting ready to turn four years old. Can you believe it? Uh, and uh, every year... Uh, because of your generosity, we have ended ahead of what we budgeted for that year, uh, and I'm truly humbled by that. Yeah, we can, yeah, you can applaud that. I just, I just say it's amazing, uh, amazing. So thank you. Um, also, I mentioned we're getting ready to turn four years old. Uh, hard to believe we're only four. Uh, but one of the things that has emerged for us in recent months as a staff team, you might not know this, but the Westlake staff, when we need to meet or have office space, we actually drive over to our sister church in Huntersville. And the reason that we have done that for these four years is that we just haven't wanted to waste any resources. We thought, gosh, why would we rent space when we can drive and meet over there? Uh, The challenge is Huntersville is going through its own renovation because they are running out of space over there. And if you've ever had a younger sibling whom you had to share a bedroom with, uh, you know what it's like for Huntersville having to put up with us. Uh, But they've been so gracious and they're not kicking us out. But we've just been feeling stirred. Uh, towards uh, a desire to have some office space, some rehearsal space, some ministry space smack in the middle of Denver. And we've just begun asking God for that, praying for that. And uh, the reason I wanted to share that with you is some of you might know of some space. Now, uh, we're, we're looking for, um, well, we're, trying to, we're praying for free space because we, again, want to be frugal with our resources. We're not sure that that's what the Lord has for us, but that's what we're asking for. And maybe you know of something that might work. Or maybe you yourself have some space uh, in your business or otherwise that you think might serve those needs. In either case, we would love to talk with you if you have any leads for us. Mostly, I share that with you because I want to ask you as a church to pray for us for that. 
uh, we really feel like this is a step God has for us in 2018. And we're just asking for his wisdom on where and his provision. So if you'll join me in that. uh, Okay, that's our business meeting done and over with. Uh, Shall we get on with the sermon? Let's start with a story. When I was in ninth grade, I had a huge crush on my friend named Jennifer. And uh, the homecoming dance was coming up, and I thought, this is my chance. And I decided I was going to ask Jennifer to go with me to the homecoming dance. Now, what you need to know is that uh, this was pre-texting days, right? I know kids, it's hard to imagine. Uh, But I had to rely on that old-fashioned, ancient technology known as note writing. And so I wrote on a little scrap of paper, Jennifer and I had algebra together, I wrote on there, I want to ask you something, call me. And I folded it up and I slid it onto her desk during algebra. And then I went home from school. And then because it was actually when dinosaurs still walked the earth and we didn't have caller ID, I sat by the phone and waited for it to ring. Because, you know, you didn't, you didn't know. You didn't know when they were going to call. In fact, when the phone rang, you didn't even know if it was Jennifer or not. You just had to kind of roll the dice and answer. So I sat by that phone for hours and hours and hours. And then into the evening, the phone finally rang. And I did what any brave, young, courageous man does. I ran out the back door and made my mom answer the phone. In case you want to know how things went with Jennifer, uh, suffice it to say my wife's name is not Jennifer. (laughs) Isn't it funny how we can find ourselves running from the very thing that we desire most? Have you ever experienced that? We can find ourselves running from the very thing we desire most. In fact, I was thinking about this. I think this is just what we know to be true in our own lives. I, I know some, maybe you know this in yours, that, that the thing that matters most in life is not actually what you run from, but what you run towards. The most important thing in life is what you, not what you run from, but what you run towards. And this is true in all these different spheres in our lives. That's true in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriages. Uh, That's true in our workplaces. It's true in our careers. It's true of our spiritual lives as well. So as today, as we begin this story uh, of Jonah, a story of running, a story of a man who was presented with an opportunity of a lifetime, and he chose to run in the other direction. The question I want us to ask is, what are we running from? Or what are we running towards? Now, Dean already asked us, most of us know something about the story of Jonah. I didn't get to see the hands. How many of y'all have heard of this guy, Jonah, or Jonah and the whale? I mean, most of us know this story, right? At least we think we know the story. Uh, It kind of goes something like this. Uh, A guy um, doesn't do what God says. He ends up in the belly of a whale. He lights a candle. He gets spit up on the beach, and he gets to live as a real boy for the rest of his life. Wait, no, that's Pinocchio, isn't it? That's Pinocchio. I'm sorry, it's just so confusing, right? They, get, they all get muddled together. You know, the truth about this story is that we can think we know this story, but do we really know what it's all about? Jonah and the whale, you, you probably actually know of it because of the big fish. And actually, you might not know this, the fish only occupies two sentences in the whole of the story. Which is to say that if we make the fish the focus, we might actually miss what the story is all about. The book of Jonah is really about a reluctant prophet 
who hates God for loving his enemies. About a reluctant prophet who tries to run from God, but he discovers that there is no place beyond the reach of God's mercy. And the thread, the the thread that weaves its way through the whole of this story is this one question, why? Why does Jonah run? Over the next five weeks, we're going to walk verse by verse through this ancient text and see what we might discover about who God is, what God is really like, and why we, like Jonah, have a tendency to run. I thought we would start today with just these first three verses from the book of Jonah. This is going to be kind of the foundation for us. This is going to set the stage for all that's going to come next. And because uh, we don't often do this, I thought we would read these verses out loud together. Uh, A couple awkward words here. Let me teach you how to say these words. The first awkward word is amatai. Amatai. Everybody say amatai. Good, good. Next awkward word is tarshish. Good, that, that one's good. All right, and then the, this one's really easy because it sounds like Jabba the Hutt. Joppa, say Joppa. Okay, we got it. So let's read this together. Jonah 1, 1 through 3, reading. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, if you're like me and you read these verses, if you've ever read the Bible for yourself or if you ever choose to, these are verses that, look, quite honestly, I just kind of breeze right past, right? Like the story hasn't even really started. Can we just skip these and get on to the actual story? But what we're actually going to discover is that these three sentences tell us something vital about the story of Jonah, that if we miss this, we might miss the rest of the story. So we're going to answer three questions today to set the stage. And if you're a note taker, you can write these down. These are the three questions I'm going to try and answer for us. The first question is this, who was Jonah? Who was Jonah? We're going to unpack that one. Uh, Second question is, why did God, excuse me, what did God ask of him? Who, what did God ask of him? And then third question, why? Why did he run? Who was Jonah? What did God ask of him? And why did he run? Now, before we can do that, I need to give you a little bit of background on this book. The book of Jonah is one of the most brilliantly told stories in all of the Bible. It's actually one of my favorites. It's full of wit, humor, irony. It's got an awesome cast of characters. There's Jonah. We've met him. There's these sailors. They're kind of like the, well, they're like the quintessential sinners. You can think of them as pirates. Uh, There's the king of Nineveh, most powerful man in the world. And of course, there's the big fish. Now, here's what's really funny about the story of Jonah. Because in Jonah, what you expect of each character, you get the exact opposite. In other words, what we think each character is going to do, they ultimately end up doing the exact opposite of that. Jonah, the religious man, he's actually going to run and hide from God. Uh, The sailors, remember the quintessential sinners? They're going to worship God on the deck of their boat. Okay, then the king of Nineveh, he's, he's like the ultimate bad guy, like, like Darth Vader, right? He's just the ultimate bad guy. And he, he's actually going to repent and worship God. And even his cows are going to repent. 
I mean, this is kind of extreme. And then lastly, the fish, right? You know the fish. The fish we think is going to kill Jonah, but the fish ends up actually saving Jonah. It's a crazy story. And when you're reading it, you're like, what is going on here? And that's the point. The book of Jonah was written for us. It's trying to get our attention. It's trying to tell us something. Now, anytime you're going to pick up a book of the Bible and read it, the first question you need to ask yourself is this. What kind of book am I actually reading? What kind of literature is this? You see, the Bible has many different kinds of books in it. There are historical books. Uh, They tell factual histories. There are biographies. Think of the Gospels about Jesus. Uh, There are, uh, there's erotic love poetry. Did you know that? Some of you are going to go home and read your Bible today. Uh, Did you, you, there's actually, you actually get to read other people's mail in the Bible. Did you know that? The vast majority of the New Testament are letters written to other people. And we get to kind of peek in and see what those letters are all about. So, the question, what kind of book is Jonah? Well, the very first sentence gives us a clue. It says this, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, in the Old Testament, what kind, not a trick question, what kinds of people did the word of the Lord come to? Prophets. Prophets. The word of the Lord comes to prophets. Look at, look at these other books, how they begin. Micah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Micah. Micah's a prophet. Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah's a prophet. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. Hosea is a prophet. So Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. What is a prophet? Well, a prophet is not a fortune teller in spite of our common notion today. Though sometimes prophets pointed to the future, more often they served as as the conscience of the people. They served as a kind of mirror to the people for their actions and their ways. When the people drifted too far from God, from God's ways, the prophet would raise the mirror so they could see the error and how far they had drifted. It was a warning. It was an invitation to return to God. Now, Jonah, Jonah's different. Jonah is unique among the prophets. Instead, this book, instead of focusing on the words, the mirror of Jonah, it's going to hold up to us the life and actions of Jonah. And this time, the mirror is for us, the reader. We are to see the Jonah in us. No other book in the Bible like this. Jonah is unique amongst all the biblical literature. That's why it's one of my favorites. Okay, so back to our sermon. That's the end of our background work, right? Back to our sermon. The first question, so who was Jonah? Who was Jonah? Well, we've already determined that Jonah was a prophet. Uh, Kings tells us, the book of Kings, a historical book, tells us that Jonah was a prophet during King Jeroboam II. Now, here's here's all you need to know about Jeroboam. There's a ton to know about Jeroboam. We're just going to cover a little bit. Jeroboam's dad, Jeroboam the... Oh, see, you guys are so smart. Jeroboam the first. He was considered one of the worst kings in the history of all Israel. 
In fact, if you know the story under King David, remember David, Goliath, remember that guy? David, remember, united the kingdom, and, and they had everything was hunky dory. It's awesome, the, the stout, you know, temples there, it's all good. But then came, along came Jeroboam. Jeroboam rallied all of the leaders in the north. He waged civil war against the southern part of the kingdom. They separated. He built his own temple in the north, not in Jerusalem, and he set up a golden cow inside that temple. The dude had not read his Bible, right? I mean, it's, this, this, is, this is not good. So question, was Jeroboam I a good guy or a bad guy? Not a trick question. Bad guy, he's a terrible guy. He's called the king that led Israel into sin. That's his name. That's what he, okay, so he's bad guy. Now, his son, Jeroboam II, was not much better. Look at what he, uh, how he is described in Kings, these verses here. Jeroboam II did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of his father, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Is Jeroboam II a good guy or a bad guy? Bad guy, bad guy. He's not any better, right? He's a, he's does evil in the subject. Now, here's why all this matters. Hang with me. I know this is some detail. Here's why all this matters. Jeroboam II is Jonah's boss. This is the guy that Jonah works for. Remember, the prophet is supposed to raise the mirror to the king when he's doing evil in the sight of Yahweh. What does Jonah do? He prophesies in favor of Jeroboam II. He's just kind of like, hey, whatever's going to advance my career, I am all in. And then when things turn south, you know what he does? He prophesies against his own prophecy. He's just kind of playing the game. He's just climbing the ladder as best he can. He doesn't really care about much else. And in this way, we get the picture that Jonah is a lousy prophet. Now, when our story opens, there's a bit... bit, The lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue. The lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue. I'm going to practice that next week. Where was I? Oh, the humor. When Jonah starts, I'm not going to recover from this one. This is bad. All right, when Jonah starts... Look at how he's introduced. This is, this is meant to be, I mean, this is how the original audience would have read this. They know that Jonah's a lousy prophet, right? So the story starts out and it says, Jonah, son of Amittai. Now the name Jonah means dove, the pure one, the innocent one. And the name Amittai means the faithful one. And so the original readers would have read this and they would have said, oh, I get it. This is a joke. This guy's not innocent. This guy's not faithful. I can't wait to see where this story's going. Do you feel it? It's pregnant with tension. Now, okay, uh, get my head back on after all that. All right, so this is going to be good. So here we go. So that's a little bit about who Jonah is, lousy prophet. God's call comes to him. What does God ask him to do? Look with me at verse 2. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you had to guess, remember good guy, bad guy, if you had to guess about the Ninevites, are the Ninevites good guys or bad guys? 
bad guys. The Ninevites are terrible. See what he says here is their wickedness has come up before me. The Ninevites are bad guys in the story. But remember, in Jonah's story, our characters are always going to end up doing the opposite of what we expect them. But you see, Nineveh was the capital of ancient Assyria. It's in what is modern-day Iraq. In fact, Nineveh uh, is actually just, the ruins of Nineveh, we think, are just right outside the modern-day city of Mosul. In Jonah's day, Nineveh and the Assyrians were the most powerful nation in all the world. They, they were also Israel's dreaded, hated enemies. The Assyrians were the great oppressor of the ancient world. In fact, when the Assyrians needed labor for their economy, you know what they did? They would go and invade Israel... They would take the leaders outside the camp. This is the PG-13 part. They would skin them alive, and then they would leave them for dead, and they would take everybody else back to put them in slave work camps in Nineveh. Not exactly the kind of guy you're hoping your daughter brings home to marry, right? I mean, Ninevites are bad dudes. So uh, you can imagine Jonah's dilemma here, right? You can imagine the tension he feels. God comes and he says, Jonah, listen, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, yeah, right, right. That's a good one, God. No, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. God, are you sure? The Ninevites are our hated enemies. God, your mercy could not possibly extend to the Ninevites, could it? And then you can hear Jonah's internal dilemma. If I go, what's this going to mean for my career? What are my friends going to say? My family's going to think I'm one of those crazy religious people that goes to church every Sunday. One of my favorite books is by the great theologian, Dr. Seuss. Maybe you've heard of it before. It's called, Oh, the Places You'll Go. I was given this book when I graduated college, and I've cherished it ever since. Uh, but uh, another author, John Ortberg, imagines what this story of Jonah might have sounded like if Dr. Seuss had written it. Now imagine this, ready? God comes to Jonah. Here's Dr. Seuss. God says, could you, would you go to preach? Could you, would you go to reach the people of Assyria who fit my criteria? And Jonah says to God, I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there in a float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. I do not like the people there. If they died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea. So stop this talk and let me be. Can you feel the dilemma? You see, when the call of God comes on a person, and it will come, It will come to you, and you, and you. It comes to each of us. And when the word of God, the call of God comes, it will often ask us to do things we do not want to do. God's word will come to you, and it will call you to forgive those who have wronged you. It will ask you to love your enemies. It will ask you to lay down your life for another. To give sacrificially. To serve. To step out and to risk. It may come to you and call you to go. Just as he called Jonah to go. And the problem is, 
The problem for you and for me is that there is a little Jonah inside each one of us that when the word of God comes to us, there's this voice that arises that says, God, are you sure? And we're tempted to run. I remember when Mayor Rob and I were living in Los Angeles and uh, the word of the Lord came to us just a little over four years ago. And uh, the call came to leave California and to come and plant a church in North Carolina. And I thought, God, are you sure? I'm not even sure they let Californians cross the North Carolina border. I remember praying. I said, God, this sounds like a crazy... This is not something I'm prepared to do. And yet as I prayed and prayed and prayed, the call would not go. The word would not leave. This was the Lord's invitation. It's interesting, there's a guy named Abraham Maslow. Some of you will know him. He's one of the great developmental psychologists of the 20th century. Uh, And he wrote about something he called the Jonah Complex. In other words, he writes that we all have this strange tendency to avoid our calling, to evade our destiny. See, you were born in this life for a purpose. You have a calling. You have an assignment. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a called out one, a called one. God has called you to play a role in his bigger story. But when the word of God comes, when the call of God comes, there is this tendency in us to say, no, thank you. I'd rather not, God. And that's what happens to Jonah. Look at how he responds in the next verse. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. See, the call of God comes to Jonah, but he's like, there is no way. So he busts out his old Bruce Springsteen cassette, pops it in his yellow Walkman, and he plays, Baby, We Were Born to Run. That was my one joke for the 40-year-olds in the audience today like me. Yeah. He runs, and he hightails it for Tarshish. Now, just to get the feel for how crazy this moment was for Jonah, I brought a map. I, wa- I want you to see where these places are. Uh, so you see, here's, here's Israel. That's kind of where Jonah's at. And there's Joppa just to the south. And Joppa's the port town. Uh, Joppa the port. Okay, uh, and so uh, he goes down to Joppa to catch a boat. And notice, Nineveh, he doesn't even have to travel by boat to get to Nineveh. It's, it's, I mean, there's a couple hundred miles, but, but it's way closer. But look where he is set out to travel. He's going to Tarshish, literally on the other end of the known world. Nobody knew what was beyond Tarshish. It was way out there on the west coast where all the real sinners live. Okay, that's my last California joke for the day, I promise. So, he's, dude, it's, it's over 2,000 miles. This is more than a year's journey to get to Tarshish. And yet, that is where Jonah sets out to head. Now, watch this. this I don't have this in my notes. This is a little bit kind of nerdy, but hang with me here. What else in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, is in the east near Nineveh? The Garden of Eden. 
And in the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish thinking in Jonah's day, to travel east was to draw nearer to God, and to travel west was to move as far away from God as you possibly could. Do you see what Jonah's doing? He's not just running from the call. He's running from God himself. He went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. You see, the truth is, this is the hard truth for us as human beings. The truth is that when God's call comes in our life, there is always a boat sailing in the wrong direction. When God's call comes in your life, there is always an opportunity. There is always a boat waiting for you to move in the wrong direction. More on that next week. But for today, here, here's what I want to I want to get to our third and final question. More on the boat next week. Third and final question. Why did Jonah run? Why? Well, you might be thinking, Aaron, you described those Ninevites. They sound like terrible people, like Duke fans or something. I mean, they're just bad. So, uh, I mean, of course, he's afraid of those guys. Sorry to pick on Duke. I, I, I try to alternate Carolina Duke just to keep things equitable. Here we go. Um, maybe there, he's just afraid of those Ninevites. You know, he doesn't want anything to do. So he's like, oh, I'm too scared. No. Okay, maybe, maybe, but that's not actually the real reason he runs. Uh, maybe he, you're thinking, you know what? Maybe he's wanting to train for a marathon, or maybe he wants to learn how to sail, or he wants to go see Spain. Well, anyway, that's where Tarshish is. Uh, but none of those reasons are the reasons he runs. In fact, Jonah himself tells us why he ran at the end of his story. It's found in chapter 4, verse 2. Let me read it to you. This is why he says he runs. And this is Jonah, get this, this is Jonah chewing out God for his mercy. O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Do you feel his struggle? He chews God out for being loving and merciful. He cannot fathom a God who will extend mercy to his enemies. That's why he runs. You see, Jonah knew that somehow God would find a way. That God would find a way to bring his grace and his mercy to his enemies through their repentance. But Jonah doesn't want anything to do with it. Jonah has a wonderful plan for his own life. He has a wonderful vision for his own life, how his career will work out, how his life will work out, and it does not include saving the Ninevites. So when God's invitation comes, when the word of the Lord comes, all he can do is run. The book of Jonah Don't miss this. This is what I want us to get today. The book of Jonah begins with an invitation for us to rethink what obedience in the Bible is all about. See, the truth is that as human beings, we have competing visions, competing views with God about what our lives are supposed to look like what it is that gives us or amounts to the good life. We each have a vision of what we think our own good life, good life looks like. Mine usually involves uh, some chips and guacamole, an umbrella drink, and a beach in Mexico. Like That's kind of my vision of the good life. Uh, you have a vision of your good life. God has a vision for your life. 
And we have this tension. We have this conflict in us. What God wants for us and what we want for us. What we think will lead to real life. And then, here's what happens. Jesus enters the picture and he says, follow me. And he says, look, there are a bunch of things in your life that you're doing that you think are going to lead to real life, but there's no life in them at all. And that's what's happening here for Jonah. Here's this man whose core issue is being confronted. And the sad irony is that he thinks he's running for his life when in reality he is running from life. Look at what he's running from. He has the opportunity to participate in the movement of God's grace, a movement of God's grace that is greater than anything the world had ever seen. And yet, he misses out on being a part of it and enjoying it because he can't surrender his own vision for his own good life. I never really understood the importance of obedience before I had kids. Those of you who have had, have had kids kind of know what I'm talking about. Uh, when we had our first two, uh, they were very young. Mary Rob and I lived in a small duplex uh, on a very busy street in Pasadena, California. We had this tiny, tiny little yard. And uh, because you, know, you have to maximize everything when you're all jammed up with your neighbors like that, we would go out and play ball in this tiny yard. And as would always happen, the ball would roll into the street. And so we had to have one rule. And that was that when the ball rolled into the street... Dad was the only one who was allowed to go and get the ball, right? It was a very important rule. Now, when they were little, it was kind of easy because they would start running for the ball and I could catch them and lift them up by one arm and, you know, then get the ball or whatever. But as they got a little bit older and they got faster, we had to establish rule number two. That is that when dad said stop, you stopped. And when dad said come, you come. Very important rule for kids playing in the front yard, right? Well, things worked really well. We, we called it right away without delay was what we called that rule. Really, really helpful. Now, but then the day came, I can remember, and um, I don't want to out my children, so I'll let her name remain anonymous. <laughs> I asked her permission to tell this story. Uh, but I remember I was playing with Zoe in the front yard, and I can still picture her face clear as day. Maybe you've had this experience. So we're playing, and so you can imagine I'm here, and Zoe's here, and the ball rolls out into the street, and she starts to go for it, and I yell, stop. And she looks back at me like this, right? And you can see the dilemma in her eyes. Because she wants nothing more than to go and get that ball for herself. Her very vision of the good life is tied up in that ball. If she can get that ball, she will be blissfully happy for eternity. That's what's going on in her mind, right? But on the other end is her dad who is saying, stop and come. And there's this tension. I think that's exactly what's going on here in the story of Jonah. You see, my daughter had a choice to make in that moment. She could either keep running away or she could stop and run to her father. See, the crazy thing about me as a father is that in that moment, I have only goodwill towards my daughter. I only want the best for her. I want for her to enjoy the snot out of that ball, right? I just want her to have the best time, just not right at that moment. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. Our Father in Heaven has only good will for us. Jesus put it this way. He said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. That's the vision. 
You see, God so badly wants Jonah to participate in this amazing mission, in bringing the grace and mercy of God to these people that no one ever expected to receive it. But Jonah can't see it. He's blind to it. And so he does the only thing that he knows to do. He runs. And I was thinking about this in our own experience you know, the truth is that we face this kind of moment every day, don't we? We face a moment where we're, we're torn between choices of what leads to the good life. And, and what does it mean to actually trust that God might desire our best? It's the choice we face. And, and there's actually, a, a, the thing that makes this so difficult is there's actually a kind of death, a kind of cross that we endure in this moment. Because when I say no to my life, And yes, to God, there's a part of me that has to die. Jesus put it this way. He said, those who want to find their life will lose it. But those who lose it for my sake will find it. That's what the cross is all about. That's what faith is all about. And if you're a person who maybe you would not identify as a Christian, you would say, I'm more of a skeptic, or I'm just kind of curious, I, I, I just want to shoot real straight with you. Because at its core, this is what Christianity is all about. It's a decision to let my vision for my life die and to receive the life and vision that God wants to give me. Now, there are parts of this life that I may yet pick up again on the other side, but I will hold them entirely differently Because I understand that I am no longer the center of my story. I am a role in a much bigger story. The story of God at work in the world and I have a role to play. I have a call. I have a word. I have an assignment. You have a call. You have a word. You have an assignment. God's word will come to you. God's call will come to you. And in that moment, the voice of Jonah in us will arise. And the decision will be yours. Will you run away or will you run towards your heavenly father? The most important thing in life is not what we run away from, but what we run towards. So I want to give you just a moment to reflect. If you'll bow your heads with me in a posture of prayer, I'm not going to ask you to do anything, raise anything or nothing. Just a moment for you and God. Today, as we begin this journey of Jonah, is there a place in your life where you are tempted to run to Joppa, to sail to Tarshish? What if today you were just to stop and turn and consider the good life your Heavenly Father is calling you? If you've never considered what it means to die to your vision of your life and receive the vision God has for your life, you might just ask God to do that with you now. You say, God, I want to surrender my vision of my life to you. I want to receive the vision, the call you have for me. That's what it means to become a Christian. 
And even if you're already a Christian, this is the decision we face every day. The decision to follow Jesus. What part of your life is he calling you to turn from? Even as you turn towards him even now. Jesus, I thank you that your invitation, your call still comes to us today. And Lord, for my friends, those who've never considered putting their faith in you and those who are doing their best to follow you, all of us together, Lord, today, would we hear your call and would you give us the courage to stop and to turn and to say yes to that invitation in our lives. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the call that you've placed on our lives. Would you give us the courage to live it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.